0: G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and people that have an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Ashley Kelly, and he's a sea urchin taxonomist. And we're going to be talking all about sea urchins. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. So you run a sea urchin museum, and when I kind of look up sea urchins and think about sea urchins, your name is definitely at the top of the list. Before we get into what a sea urchin is, tell us how or why you have such a passion for sea urchins.
1: I think the reason I I am so passionate about it is because Firstly, they're very attractive-looking things. If you get the sea urchin you know, in its natural environment, they're an amazing structures of spines, pedicellaria, which are the little poisoning glands beneath the spines. Their five-ray symmetry stands out, and in some instances, the, the colour and sculpture can be seen, you know, between the spines, uh, you know, when they're living. But when the thing is actually dead, you, the sea urchin test, as it's called, which is like the skeleton, is just as incredible. I mean, it, it, it looks totally different to the live animal, but you've got this colourful banded striped, you know, sometimes zigzags and diamonds present on the surface of the sea urchin test. So, you know, who couldn't be attracted to that in nature? And I think it goes back to when, you know, we're, we're sort of young children and we go to the beach and discover these things for the first time and they, they get stuck in your mind and you think wow that's really something that I like and years later you you follow up on it which is what happened with me and you know there's there's just no stopping the interest you just uh you can't get bored of it I suppose because there's always something new to find and to discover especially when you you're a diver or, or a beachcomber or you know or a scientist and there's a lot in it they're, they're also very functional creatures you know they, they help to control the algae they help to clean the sand in the environment which is like the bilaterally symmetrical urchins like your sand dollars and heart urchins um, which we don't really see that often but if you do go subtidally, you'll, you you can see them on the sand or if after a storm they get washed up on the beach you can observe those and they've got this incredible you know as I said bilaterally symmetrical patterns on them as well they're also not as well known as perhaps mollusks um, you know seashells and things like that certainly fewer species worldwide but just at the moment there's a a big flurry of interest uh, worldwide with sea urchins and you know as you say I'm kind of at the top of the list yeah and I'm more than happy to help share the experience and that's what it's all about to to get it all out there and enjoy it and see the beauty of these things and kind of take it away from boring science
0: (laughs) as I call it (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah I mean they're interesting animals so let's make them interesting
0: yeah and especially I think I just remember the first kind of times I've seen sea urchins was beachcombing and their shells are amazing and you look at a normal kind of shell that washes up or they, sorry their test their they're out of skin you look at a normal shell that kind of washes up and you're like oh yeah that's pretty there's about a thousand of them but you find a piece of um, sea urchin and you're like wow that is that is really cool and the patterns are, are amazing as you said so tell us, what is a sea urchin exactly?
1: Okay, sea urchins are exclusively marine invertebrates. They, unlike things like uh, mollusks and other, other life, they don't actually live in fresh water. They've got a very low tolerance to you know, poor salinity. So you won't find them in you know, brackish water up near estuaries and um, you know, way up the Parramatta River, for example. They have a five-ray radial symmetry. They have a water vascular system. And they actually have a skin layer, which isn't very evident when you pick one up, but it is there. And they're part of the echinoderms. When echinoderms usually have spines, tube feet, pedicellaria, plates, or ossicles, and don't have a, a brain or a nervous system either. So in a way, they're quite simple. Um, and if you were to open one up, you pretty much find a lot of inf- well, urchins that that is filled with water. And they also have five gonads as well, which you know when it's spawning time, they, they tend to get. More swollen. So in a sense, they're kind of simple animals. The spines are used for uh, protection. They also use for locomotion. Also for sort of wedging themselves in in habitat to kind of stop themselves from being uh, dislodged in sort of surge zones. And some of them have modified spines to to actually dig. And so they're sort of flat-tipped or modified. There is an urchin around Sydney which we find called the pencil urchin. That's Phillicanthus spinus uh, which has very big, thick pencil spines. It's quite a primitive design you know, they pretty much re- remain unchanged for millions of years. And so obviously a very successful group of urchins. But, um, you know, if you ever find one of those, it's recently died and the spines have fallen off. And it's one of the most incredible things of nature. It's so perfect, so symmetrical. You have the little tubercles where the spines articulate and they occur in 20 rows and they just look fantastic. Um, it's, an, it's an amazing thing. You couldn't help but not be taken in by the
0: natural beauty of, of the sea urchin test of a pencil urchin yeah like because pencil urchins if you think of kind of an underwater landmine from like one of the war movies or something that's what i always think of a pencil urchin as and i remember actually diving with one in sydney harbour at in mossman and afterwards i came out and there was actually a whole flurry on the pier because someone had called the police claiming that there was an unexploded mine underwater and yes, I remember that. It's pencil surgeon.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. And that, that's interesting because I remember that. It was, I think it was in the Mossman Daily, wasn't it, reported? And, uh, yeah, they didn't know what it was. But, yes, they do look like landmines, I have to say, unexploded landmines, particularly a large one, and they're not generally that large. Um, well, subtly, you tend to get them larger. I also can recall, I think it was in a paper in the UK, they found a kynocardium cordatum which is a very common heart urchin in temperate seas around the world. And um, anyway, these things had washed ashore and they, they thought they were aliens of some description because, of course, you know, they, they burrow under the sand up to 30 centimetres and you don't really see them very often. So, you know, a beachcomber may you know, only see this sort of thing a few times in their life, so they didn't know what they were because, you know, they were symmetrical and they looked a bit strange and unusual. They didn't look like a seed or a, an egg or anything. They looked odd to them and you know, naturally they thought they was something a bit alien. So, yeah, but I, I had a bit of a laugh at that one as well,
0: <laughs> as well as the
1: landmine one.
0: <laughs> and so you just mentioned that there's actually burrowing urchins. So they use their spines to burrow and then they, they totally submerge beneath the sand.
1: Yeah, so basically sea, urch- sea urchins can be divided into, you know, two rough kind of a group. So we, we call them regular sea urchins. So that includes the radially symmetrical ones and irregular sea urchins. So that includes the heart urchins and the sand dollars and the heart urchins, those two are bilaterally symmetrical. So with the heart urchins and sand dollars, they actually don't live on rocky substrates like the regular ones do. And by the way, regular ones also can live on sand and different environments too, but they don't burrow. So a heart urchin has specialized morphology to allow it to dig in mud and sand and shell grit and, you know, coralline sand and and even gravel, uh, depending on the different sorts of morphological features that it's evolved. So, for example, Echinocardium chordatum is very efficient in its burrowing technique and also being able to build a little sanitary funnel up to the water from up to 20 centimeters deep in the sand. So, it slowly moves along in the sand and constructs this funnel and also brings in freshly oxygenated seawater so it can breathe in a fairly confined space. So, they've evolved incredible little things over time. They also have these things called fascioles and fascioles are like little pathways that occur on the, the top surface of hard urchins and also just below the anus. There's one called a subanal fasciole, uh, the peripetalis fasciole, and there's, they have also have lateral fascioles and um, uh, endopetalis fascioles in some different groups. And they're all responsible for helping this urchin, the urchins, um, maintain a in existence in a burrow in sand. They don't all burrow, there's some uh, some other ones around here, for example, you know, Lavinia elongata, which is a a tropical one that has an endopetalus fasciol, but it doesn't have a peripetalus. So it doesn't really burrow very deeply. You can actually see the the protective spines arch up in the sand. And then you've got Valencian's eye, which is a Victorian and Tasmanian heart urchin. And that one doesn't burrow very easily, uh, very deeply either. Uh, With the sand dollars, they actually don't burrow too deep. They're just sitting on on the top of the sand with a a thin veneer of sand over the top of them. So they extract edible particles from the sand and and pass them to the mouth. The difference between sand dollars and hard urchins is sand dollars actually have teeth. So they actually crush the sand as they swallow it. But hard urchins um, are sediment swallowers, so they ingest almost continuously the sand that they they have in their burrow and, and just pass out the clean sand to the environment. So both those types are important because they, they actually clean the sea floor like little vacuum cleaners. Yeah, and actually they well things like the cardium. There's another uh, species locally in Sydney Harbour called Metalia, uh, Metalia angustus, and there's another one, Brissus agassizii, which also extends to Victoria, and those ones um, can be found in quite large numbers. Uh, you know, if you're prepared to do a bit of digging, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, but when you do find one, you, you generally find them in quite large numbers and they're quite large species as well. You know, Metalia and Bristus get to up to, say, 170 millimetres long. So they're not small creatures. They're quite large. Yeah, if you actually open one up, you'd see there's probably, I think, up to around about three or 400 grams of sand in the, in the gut at any one time. Wow. So, so they, they do
0: t- actually... It takes in that sand and then it spits it out.
1: Yeah, yeah, it just passes it out the uh, back end yeah so yeah
0: they're, they're quite able to swallow large
1: large amounts of sediment so yeah they're, they're quite interesting things but you you know as i said you have to really burrow for, you know dig for these things to be able to see them and observe them and study them because they don't for example come out at night and go foraging they're, they're always in their burrows and so you really have to sort of hone in on a little depression in the sand and fan the sand away and then you'll you'll actually find us often a heart urchin under there Oh wow! Yeah, fascinating.
0: Yeah, mm. uh, that's really cool. So, so those urchins eat kind of eat sand or clean sand. What do other urchins eat? And what are some of the weirdest things they eat? Because I know they do eat a few things you don't expect.
1: Yeah, they they do actually. Well, getting back to the regular sea urchin, so that's the type that we're all familiar with. That you know have five ray symmetry. That the big you know black spine ones or orange spine ones. So they they basically algae feeders and detrital feeders. Some of the ones that live on the, you know, a bit more accessible, so just subtitle like Centrostephanus stefanus eye, that's more of a macroalgal feeder, so it'll scrape small amounts of algae from large boulders. Then you get Holopnustis uh, porosissimus, Holopnustis inflatus, and Holopnustis purpurescens. They're the ones that are very spherical, very ball-shaped ones, and they tend to be suspension feeders. And by that, what I mean is they live in the kelp fronds or seagrass fronds. So they actually scrape the surface and also eat those, the kelp and seagrass. They're actually quite a specialised form, those. In Victoria, you get Amblyneustes. So you get Amblyneustes pachistus, Amblyneustes formosus on the odd occasion, and Amblyneustes ovum. So they're, again, more towards sheltered bays, but they're, they're algal feeders. And those belong to a group called the Temnopleurids, you now, temna are lovely sculptured, tested sea urchins. Australia has a, quite a unique fauna of them, and many of them are endemic to southern Australia. So as far as the other things that temna eat, there's also the type that they don't actually live on rocks and they don't live in suspension environment. They live on the seafloor and they actually crawl around looking for detritus. And some of them actually camouflage the top surface with rocks and bits of shell and um, even bits of broken glass just to sort of camouflage themselves. There's a few species locally, um, Salmassiella and Salmacis uh, two of them. They have fairly longer, longer spines on the, around the mouth and the bottom surface and they're spatulate tipped. So having a flat tip enables them to actually crawl over the sediment. And as they do, they sort of pick around for little edible particles. And um, as I said before, they actually pass some of those to the top surface to camouflage. So the temperate pleurids are quite an interesting little bunch. If you think of below the latitude below Sydney, travelling south to Victoria, across to South Australia and all the way up to Perth, there's quite a range of temperate pleurids that are endemic to Australia and they don't, they don't occur anywhere else. So we have this amazing, unique fauna of you know, southern Australian temperate pleurids. And some of them get quite complex particularly the genus Amblyneustes, it always caused a bit of confusion. <laughs> but, you know, these days with DNA sequencing and, um, you know, molecular work, we are working through these things and we, we've actually realised with um, some of the other urchins, not actually they're not actually tendupleurids, but they're, they're still local. Um, we've actually split them into separate species, something that was long, long
0: suspected years ago, but it's good to see it's happened. Ah, <laughs> oh, cool. And I guess that just shows how amazing. So the, the Great Southern Reef is, Reef is something I talk about a lot. And that cat goes from like Sydney to Perth. And it just shows you that, you know, the Great Barrier is amazing, but the Great Southern Reef, I think is just as cool and has just as much amazing diversity in it. Yeah, I personally, from
1: my own experience, I actually prefer the Southern waters more. I think they're a lot more interesting and beautiful. I mean, I've, I've been to the Barrier Reef many times and up to North, North of that, the Coral Sea and Beautiful. But as far as the diversity of echinoderms goes, I think we're, yeah, I think I find it a lot more um, interesting. For example, in the 20 or 25 years I've been diving around Sydney, I've actually recorded 53 sea urchin species. And that's a really large number. Now, some of those were, were one-offs and some of them were things that actually come down in the East Australian current as larvae and then they, they grow and then they, they die off and then they come down again and you get a new recruitment. But interestingly, some of those that we've seen since around 2011, when the, the winter temperatures don't get so cold anymore, have been able to, you know, sustain a population and, and breed um, which is quite interesting for me because, you know, back in the 90s, the, the winter temperatures would go down to about 13 degrees around sort of um, Port Jackson. But now 17 degrees is about what, what we kind of experience now. Uh, you know, really wow. get it much less than that. Yeah, so, you know, those extra few degrees
0: have meant that the tropical
1: stuff can survive. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it's changing the, the ecology. And I think Sydney especially is kind of one of the points on the coast, I feel like is a differentiation. It's where sea dragons kind of start. It's where a lot of like, you know, seagrasses kind of like, you know, border and stuff. So I guess that's kind of moving south as the climate changes, unfortunately. But you mentioned that you saw like 50 species or 53 species just in Sydney. Now, I think there's what, about 950 species. That means that 5% of urchins worldwide can be found in Sydney. That's crazy. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. It's it's an enormous amount. I mean, it rivals the Great Barrier Reef. You know, if I was to spend probably a year up in, um, you know, Lizard Island, which is quite a diverse area for urchins, um, I don't know if I would even get 53 in that in that time period. Yeah, it is. It is a very interesting place. I mean, part of the reason is you've got a range of habitats. It's not just rocks where people are familiar with seeing urchins. Uh, there's, there's kelp forests, uh, not, not big ones, but they're there. There's um, you know, large boulders, you have shell grit, you have seagrass, you have very coarse shell grit because some some heart urchins prefer very coarse you know substrates. For example, Protonaster Australis has to live in that sort of shell grit to to be able to breed properly. Metalia also loves it too. So it's interesting because when you find metalia or brissus in this coarse shell environment, and then you sort of move a little bit to there's a sand ridge in in the harbour, which becomes suddenly a lot more fine and it's consistently in its consistency, you don't find them anymore. It just stops. So they they really enjoy a type of sediment grade. So yeah, Sydney Harbor is diverse in its habitat and there's a whole bunch of algae and there's probably a whole lot of things that I don't even understand down there that they're liking. And that's why they stay. (laughs) I mean we, we never really will know at all. But um it's good to record everything that I have found and in that time period because I guess it's a bit of a benchmark to compare for years to come when the, you know, the ocean temperatures do change and the habitat changes and whatever else is uh, about to come in, in decades from now. And actually, I had no idea there was that amount of diversity here when I first started going to the Australian Museum back in the late 80s to identify some of the things I'd found. And I remember saying to one of the scientists there, I said, how, how far up the harbour towards, say, Lanko River, do sea urchins actually still exist? And he goes, well... No one's ever really looked that far up, and I said, "Oh, oh, really?" <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, that was something that I just couldn't get out of my mind. I thought I'd love to be able to to dive and see what really is down there and record it. So that's that's kind of what I did years later, you know, maybe five or six later after I spoke to him. Yeah, I mean, fifty three species later, um, I it's incredible, and you know, that's only two areas in Sydney, so it's really a small part of Sydney Harbour from around about. Nielsen Park Swimming Enclosure to the Heads, and also Botany Bay from Cornell across to La Perouse. So it's really not a large area that i studied, but,
0: but it's a good area because the habitats are there. Yeah, I mean, it always blows my mind that on the shore of one of the, the biggest city in Australia, there is such amazing diversity and abundance of marine life. It's, it's really incredible.
1: Yeah, definitely. And especially when um the general consensus that it's not so clean down there because I said, Well we're actually, you know, Sydney siders do really look after the environment. I mean, it's actually very clean down there. I think they get a perception that there's old cars and old tyres and rubbish down there from accumulation of many years of things flooding down from the Parramatta River or whatever. But no, not really. That's not my experience at all. And
0: it's great. I mean, that's why all these things can live. Yeah. So You've dived with all these urchins. What's the coolest thing or one of the most interesting things you've seen whilst you've been diving with urchins?
1: Oh, wow. It's, there's so many, but I'll, I'll just pick a few experiences that stand out. One is probably something that I found, oh, it would have to be about 20 years ago. It's called Schizasta port Jacksonensis. And it's only known from four specimens found in Port Jackson. I found a damaged one and an intact one. It was obviously fresh dead, sitting on the sea floor, And it's a heart urchin with a very deep furrow at the front, and that's used for burrowing in muds. And I did actually find it sitting on mud at fairly deep water from memory. I think it was about 18 metres. And it has two little what they call petals, two little tiny ones, and then it has two lyre-shaped petals at the other end. And it's just a spectacular-looking thing. The Schizastridae are known for their unusual beauty, and they do have lyre-shaped petals and these two little tiny petals at the other end. So to find something that was so rare and never found it again, and it's only known from Port Jackson, was pretty exciting. It was only discovered in 1980 and named in 1980. So since that time, only four. I think there's a holotype and one paratype and the two that I found, and that's all that's known. Then there's a time where this is going back probably five or six years ago. As I've explained, I've been looking at Sydney Harbour for a very long time. And then I did five consecutive dives. Some of them were in Sydney Harbour. And some of them were in Botany Bay. And on each dive, I found Spetagobrisis incus, which is a fairly recently described sea urchin back in 1990 that was known from Spencer Gulf and Glenny Island in Victoria. So to have a southern Australian endemic species found so far north, and I'd never found it before then, and I've never found it after, in five consecutive dives, is almost unexplainable I, I can't really explain that at all i mean you could say it could have in ballast water but i think that's a possibility if it was in one of those localities but because it was in two uh, unless the same boat just disposed of a lot of water in both environments i don't know because the southern currents don't really come north from that far south they, they tend to travel from the the tropics further down so but that was very exciting i mean there, there are very few specimens known of that regardless. You know, I have some in my scientific collection from Spencer Gulf, and then there's the original ones that were found you know, back in the ni- early 1990s. So, so that was very special to me. And then there's another one, which is a brand new species that I found um, actually in Vaucluse Bay. It's a very large urchin, it's a heart urchin. It was bright red, and I was just digging in the sand at about three metres deep, and um, I unearthed this thing that is totally new to science and it's about 180 millimetres long. So it's one of Australia's largest heart urchins. It's really big. But having said that, this thing actually, over the years, I've, I've discovered it actually occurs in the Philippines as well. And I believe there's one specimen in either the Queensland Museum Collection or the Western Australian Museum Collection that is the same thing. So it's probably more widespread, but it still hasn't been named. So there, there's some of the things. There's many, many experiences, but. Yeah, uh, you know, three that stick out for me because they were quite exciting.
0: Yeah, I think seeing I think seeing any rare animal underwater is a cool experience, and especially if you have such a you know wealth of knowledge of urchins like you do, seeing one you've never seen before, I, I could imagine myself just laughing and cheering underwater for um, an experience like that. So,
1: <laughs> well, you do tend to do that.
0: You sort of go woohoo,
1: you know, these <laughs> bubbles sort of float up to the surface. Um, but it's okay because there's nobody around to feel embarrassed uh, about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so we'll say a couple of uh, cool facts about urchins. So you mentioned this earlier and this was going to be like one cool fact, but you mentioned that they're symmetrical, but five fold symmetrical. I want to hear a little bit more about the fact that they're like five way symmetrical. Yeah. So they, they're five
1: way symmetrical. They don't, actually have a preferred um, orientation, if you like. So if you place a, a, CH, a regular sea urchin, you know, for example, in a tray with seawater, it doesn't really, you know, have a preferred front or, or or backwards or side movement. It's just random. It can go anywhere. I guess if you sort of prompt it to go one direction, it just will. So, yeah, they can kind of turn any, any, any old direction. But, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very functional design because, it's lasted for so many millions of years,
0: you know, pretty much unaltered, you know, it's a basic design anyway. Yeah, because and I just have to, you know, think when you dissect an urchin or when you open an urchin up or you look at its anatomy, to think that it's symmetrical in five ways, that's, that's just really unique within the animal kingdom. And it's just, just amazing. I, I can't even kind of, you know, imagine if a human being was symmetrical in five ways. I think it would be hilarious, like five legs, five eyes, yeah, something, I mean, something from a sci-fi movie. But so that was my kind of cool fact. Have you got a cool fact for us? Yeah, yeah, I do, actually. Interestingly, they're not always
1: five-ray symmetry. I have to say, you do get these mutations. Yeah, you do. And some species are more prone to it than others. So, for example, if you went to a beach after a big storm and you, you looked at a whole bunch of holopnustes inflatus that washed up, you can actually count four or six-part symmetry. Now, six-part symmetry is very, very rare. I'm sort of estimating within that species it's more like one in about 3,000 because in the many, many years was, I've observed that species locally, i found about three or four. So, you know, it's 33 years of, you know, constantly looking at these things and i found three or four and one was broken but it's quite a large one. As far as four-ray symmetry goes, it's a little bit more common. For example, there's a a white version of Heliosidarus erythrogramma, which occurs in southern Australia, where the four-ray symmetry seems to be a little bit more common, Um, not not than than the five, but it's a little bit more common than it should be, if you like, because the green variety of it here in Sydney, I've only ever found two in my whole life, and I have seen a lot of dead ones washed in, and I do actually check them because I have a little display here based on that. So... Interestingly, when I say four asymmetry, everything is four or everything is six. So you have six teeth or four teeth. They have four ambulacra and four interambulacra. They have four genital plates. They have four ocular plates. And so it goes on. Yeah, the whole body plan is based on four or six. And it's interesting because, you know, you look at it and, you know, it's perfectly round like it should be, but you have a closer look and you go, oh, no, it's actually totally different. Symmetry is
0: just Yeah. Do you know what so, caused that?
1: Look, I just think it's a—it's not an environmental thing. I think it's just a genetic fault, and um, it's a bit like having a four-leaf clover, for example. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you get—sometimes you get five.
0: <laughs> I remember yeah. counting them as a kid. You go, oh, that's a bit unusual. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Oh, so, um, we're almost to the end now, but I want to ask one more question, and I'm going to kind of ask it to myself first, which is. What is your favorite urchin? And my favorite urchin is definitely, and I'm after a few little facts if you know any, is definitely a fire urchin where the Coleman shrimp live on top. Have you seen fire urchins before? Probably Astropyga radiata
1: from the tropics, which is really radiant, sort of, uh, it's got blue dots on it and sort of red, like fiery red coloring on the skin yeah that yeah that's the one yeah
0: yeah is what what kind of urchin is that
1: that belongs to a group called the diadematids so they're they've usually got needle spines test is well in that one particularly it's very very light it's paper thin they have hollow spines so if you have a breaker spine they're, they're quite hollow uh, the secondary spines of those are quite a bit of a hazard because they the barbs can really stick in you and very very difficult to remove yeah you've got to be very careful with those so so they include the needle spine urchins that are seen mainly in the tropics. So diadema, diadema di- cytosum, di- syvenii. Di- there is actually one from Byron Bates in Montague Island called Palmeri, which has, it actually looks like the fire urchin as well, but it's very, very red, fluorescent red almost body, especially if you take a flash photo of it underwater. Yeah, they're quite interesting and they've got perforate tubercles as well. So the little bumps that the spines articulate on have little holes in the middle. So they're quite easy to differentiate from the other the other groups. So yeah, I can see why that would be your favourite. They're they're incredible and beautifully coloured and striped yeah. and banded and and as you say, the common shrimps found on it. So commensal crabs and shrimps can be found on um, diadromedes, just sort of picking around there. Yeah,
0: yeah, interesting. They're just such a vibrant red, and yeah, they really do look like they're almost on fire. I, when I first saw one, I was just blown away. I didn't even care that they were all covered in little tiny zebra like shrimp but uh, yeah <laughs> it's, it's just a beautiful animal so what's your favorite urchin? well it's probably a toss-up between two there's a little
1: very rare endemic almost western australian southern western australian species called microcyphus compsus now this thing it's only small it only grows to probably around about oh, i'm guessing about 25 millimeters diameter but when the spines are not on it, so if you might find a dead test diving on the sea floor, they have these incredibly distinct red zigzags. There's five of them. And they're really like somebody's got a marker pen and just drawn them on there. And then the peripheral zones, which is where the tube feet protrude from, are all light pink. And then they've got white tubercles, you know, for the spines that are part of the – or the, the plates – and everything's arranged in a regular series. So they're the mo- one of the most beautiful things you can possibly imagine. So that's something called Microcyphus compsus. And I suppose the other one, really, I have to say, is Philocanthus irregularis. And that's a Western Australian, Southern Australian, or South Australian, I should say, endemic species, which grows really large for a pencil urchin. But I, have, I was given a, a specimen many years ago, and it's unusually tall and unusually perfect, and unusually large. Uh, so I, I find this thing just a something to marvel at. I've had it for a number of years, and it really is one of the most beautiful things and perfect things I've ever seen. The structure, the design, the functionality, and everything about it is just incredible. It's just a miracle of nature, I think. Wow. So those How two, big is it? Uh, oh, that one would probably be, I'm guessing, around about, Um, maybe 120 millimeters
0: diameter yeah wow that's a big urchin it with with the spines how big how big would the spines be and like so how big is the whole animal
1: yeah well if you add the spines you're probably adding an extra um
0: quite a lot actually maybe
1: the spines would be probably 100 millimeters long They're, they're quite big things so yeah adding an extra 200 mils to that so yeah it's quite a big Landmine. <laughs> yeah,
0: it would look just like one, wouldn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, to, to the I mean, it, it looks very similar to the the eastern Australian philocanthus
0: harvest spider.
1: There's only a very a few small differences between them, and it's about the gla- the granularity of the color of the spine. Um, so really, um, it's very similar, but but they do grow much bigger um, over there. Yeah. I mean, the thing is with a lot of sidarids, as we call them, like pencil urchins belong to the, the They, once you remove the spines, it's, um, they all look fairly similar. So you have to really, to differentiate the species, you have to really look closely at the spine morphology. But I find them fascinating. I mean, they've got more, the sidarids have more um, crazy-looking structures than the spines than any other group. Some of them are trumpet-shaped, they're football-shaped, They look like feathers, they look like dendrites or tree branches, they look like clubs, they just, uh, and some of them are very, very thorny as well and stunted. Uh, It just goes on forever. They're they're, they're a really incredible group. Um, Down down in Victoria, you get Goniosidaris tuberia and um, there's another very similar one called Impressa. Uh, They're quite incredible. They're, They're very, very thorny spines and they tend to attract a lot of marine growth to camouflage themselves. But... You know, sometimes they're a little bit cleaner and they you pick them up and you think, wow, they incredible looking thing, you know? So, so it looks like it's actually going to kill you, but it won't. They're quite harmless. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. cool. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of our sea urchin episode. But if anyone wants to, because I know, and this is one thing you need to tell us about quickly as well before the end, mm. if anyone wants to see your stuff, I know you have a museum as well. So... Tell us, like, yeah. what's the best way to see the urchins and kind of interact with them, like, you know, in your museum or where should they, where should people go online or what should they do? What kind of books have you got and so forth?
1: Well, the, the best way to to get in contact with me, like, I'd love to hear from people and to get in touch with them if they're interested in urchins. I'm actually in Curragong in New South Wales, which is at the foothills of the Blue Mountains, and I have a... 400 square meter museum and gallery. It's also a laboratory. So I basically have tours here and the tours usually go for one and a half to two hours. And that's really cutting it pretty fine because there's usually a lot of interest in what I have here. There's 21 theme cabinets to do with many different aspects of sea urchins in the museum. There's an eight meter worldwide biodiversity gallery of the world's sea urchins, which probably actually includes around about 400 species. That's an enormous amount of beautiful sea urchin specimens here. You can contact me by, probably best by email, which is seaurchins1 at optusnet.com.au or just see my Instagram page, which is just Ashley Miss Kelly. Or if you want to have a look at the book, which is also absolutely recommended. If you you love the colour and symmetry design and science and everything else about urchins, my coffee table book, Sea Urchins of the World, is the one that you should be looking at. And you can actually order that on seaurchins.net.au. So either of those ways, you'll get in touch with me and I'd love to hear from people who um, have the interest or even want to learn something and don't know much about it. That's okay. This is the place to come. (laughs) So I'd I'd love to have people up here. It's become very popular as well. So, um, But I'd have to make a booking and certainly can fit people in. If they're sick of staying at home like we have been for a number of months, it's good to get out and have a
0: look. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. Yeah, well, next time I'm up in Sydney, I'll definitely be checking out the museum, but there's a more. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see more of my photography on Instagram, Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography, and webpage, emptyunderwatermedia.com. If you've liked the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and visit our Patreon account, patreon.com slash podcast which helps us with funding the show production assistance by George McGrath and music by Dan Musil and his amazing slide guitar. Tune in next time to hear all about a few different seabirds with marine biologist Tom Heine. It's been the Sea Creatures Podcast. Over and out.